since last joining us on Soundtrack, and it's fair to say Damien Chazelle has done all right for himself, becoming the youngest ever winner in the Best Director category at the Oscars for La La Land. His latest offering is First Man, starring Ryan Gosling and Claire Foy. Now, the narrative explores the years leading up to and including the 1969 Apollo 11 mission to the moon, with the focus very much on the emotional challenges faced by Neil Armstrong and his family. It's another giant leap for Damien, who seems pathologically incapable of making a bad movie. Now, we discussed Whiplash and La La Land at length during our first conversation back in episode 24. So the focus is very much on how he went about creating a soundscape to transcend Earth and space for this project. Before we get to that, I want to share a special offer from our friends at The Economist, which you might already know covers a huge variety of topics. It's not just finance and economics, but intelligent, informed and accurate reflections on science, technology and the arts too. For instance, you might want to learn more about cultural censorship in Lebanon or how certain films offer escapism during these most testing of times. And regarding the subject matter of First Man, a quick dig into The Economist's online archive reveals several articles on space tourism and the ongoing efforts to put the likes of you and I on the moon. The good news is you can try The Economist out for free, courtesy of Soundtracking. All you've got to do is text SOUND to 78070. That's SOUND to 78070. And you'll get a free copy of The Economist, the smart guide to the forces challenging your world. Back to Damien and for First Man, he once again collaborated with his old friend Justin Hurwitz, who provided the scores for Whiplash and La La Land, for which he won an Oscar. And we begin with Justin's cue, Quarantine, which not only marries two of the score's main themes, but also its two main instruments, the harp and the theremin. It's nice to say welcome back, <coughs> Damien Giselle, to Soundtracking. Congratulations on on First Man. I was lucky enough to speak to you guys about it last night, and it's it's a beautiful film. It really is emotionally charged, and the music. I don't know. There's there's real heart to the music, and it feels like there's a real kind of narrative to the music in itself. If that's a fair comment, mm -hmm. would you say? Yeah. yeah? Uh, well, I mean, I, I, that was certainly the um, the hope. You know, it, it's. Um, Justin and I, my, my composer, I mean, we, we, we um, spent a lot of time talking about what, what the feel of the music was going to be uh, in the film. You know, basically as soon as we'd finished La La Land, we were kind of talking about, about this, and I, and I gave him early drafts of the script, and, mm. and, and he started um, experimenting with sounds. And then we really started in earnest the way we always do, which is uh, with, you know, him sitting at a piano for months uh, sending me piano demos and just kind of, you know, uh, uh, trying to find uh, 
the main melody. Yeah. It does feel a little bit sometimes like searching in a vacuum until <laughs> until that happens. But then once one, you know once he landed on that, um, once we both kind of agreed, okay, that's it. That's the melody to develop. Then then there's still a, obviously a lot of work to be done, but there's at least a path. Yeah. And how do you decide on, from those early stages of, of sitting at the piano and him working out melodies, to working out the instrumentation of those melodies? Because there's there's beautiful, there's, there's a harp. Mm-hmm. It's a harp that kind of yeah. kind of comes in and out throughout the film that's, that's a, a kind of recurring theme and melody that you hear on several occasions. And what are the conversations that you have with him about what that ends up being in terms of the instrumentation of it? I guess it depends. If I'm remembering correctly, uh, you know, here it sort of began with the main theme, you know, sort of being played on the piano, and 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 then and then we started talking about what, you know, what the basically the main sort of instrumental voice could yeah. be, and so I think actually before there was any talk of harp, there was talk of what could carry that main melody, you know, al- almost like a vocal line. Yeah. Um, we knew we wanted something that would have some kind of ability to bend and sustain notes. Um, felt like it didn't want to be piano or something like that. And, uh, and, and around the same time, Ryan um, uh, found this track, Lunar Rhapsody, that, um, that is an old uh, uh, theremin and orchestra track um, that, uh, that, Neil, um, that Neil and Janet actually uh, loved and that Neil played from space when he was in Apollo 11. <laughs> with that track and Justin did as well and it became a little bit of a reference for us to use the theremin as essentially this kind of vocal line mm. to sort of carry the melody that way and then to surround it with both orchestra and finally we started playing around with certain riff ideas because we knew I, I think I knew I wanted the moon landing to be sort of mainly scored by a kind of propulsive churning repeated motif
not harp during that sequence, but uh, Justin, I think, really fell in love with, with the possibilities of that riff and developing that riff as mm -hmm. kind of a sub-theme yeah. uh, to the movie, and that finally wound up on harp. So it, it was sort of the circuitous path, but it's yeah. kind of how we wound up with, I'd say, two main compositions or two main melodies uh, that kind of are reprised throughout the film. And then, of course, it's about figuring out, okay, what are the variations of those and what are the sort of in-between compositions that carry you from point A to point yeah. B and how do you orchestrate all of them. Also because you have two worlds where you have the human world in terms of this emotion mm -hmm. that him and his family are going through and all the other families as well. But then you have giant rockets heading to the moon yeah. and kind of not going crazy with that, you know, because you could easily ha have gone space batshit crazy with it, you know. It's but very easy to with that subject <laughs> yeah. matter, yeah. <laughs> but, but bridging those two worlds yeah. kind of seamlessly and, and pulling on the emotions and almost switching those worlds as well at times. Yeah, it's 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 it was definitely trying to, I mean, it, we, we, we talked a lot about trying to do what Ryan and I talked a lot about trying to do with the film, try to find a balance between the intimate and the mm. epic and to try to find a balance between the sort of quotidian life and space yeah uh, 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 and something I love about the theremin is that it has this immediate association uh, when you hear it with with science fiction yeah. because of its use in certain iconic 50s science fiction movies uh, movie scores and that's essentially what the what the moon was you know to people living at the time of our movie yeah. you know uh, uh, the moon walking on the moon uh, the only images people had seen of that were from science fiction. Um, and um, so there's something that about the theremin that I think helps suggest that outlandishness, the, the sort of far-reaching aspect of that vision. Um, and there's also something about the sustain of its sound that just, it always sounds to me like a boomerang being thrown into space. That there's something <laughs> about it that just kind of uh, directs your gaze outward.
a human quality and, uh, too as well. And then also at the same time, exactly at, at times, uh, depending on the key, sounds like uh, like the voice of a uh, uh, you know of a woman of a soprano singing, uh, mm -hmm. or, or or a woman wailing even, you know, um, or a ghost sort of wailing. There's a beautiful human quality to mm -hmm. it. Which is ironic, given that it's you know essentially kind of one of the predecessors of you know sort of what you'd call electronic instrumentation. You're not you're not creating the sound by direct human means. You know yeah. you're creating it by ma manipulating waves, sound waves basically. So uh, it's just a fascinating instrument, and I think it has a lot of emotion in it, and it just seemed like a good tie, yeah. a, a good bridge to these two worlds. And then especially when you combined it, when we found what happened when we combined it with harp or with certain kind of very old school acoustic instruments, it had a little bit of that effect as well of just uh, of living in the everyday grounded reality and then sort of surging you upward from that into the realm of science fiction. Yeah. It's one of those instruments that looks really easy to play, but I, you know, yeah, I've, I've tried and learned the hard way. Justin, but, but, I believe, learned pretty intensely to play it. Yeah, he, he uh, well, this is typical of Justin. He, 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 as soon as he decided, well, maybe Theremin would be interesting for this score, he set about getting one himself and then watching videos on YouTube to learn how to play it. And so he basically taught himself how to play it. And so, yeah, every instance of Theremin in the movie is, is him playing it. There's some really powerful moments in the film where there's no sound. Mm -hmm. You know, it's kind of what does space sound like? And in one particular one where you you suck the sound away from us. Yeah. It kind of takes your breath away mm -hmm. in a way when it happens and stuff. And that for me is what I imagine it sounding like. Yeah. Well, I mean, it was it was fun playing around with that because it's it's uh, you know normally in movies uh, when the movie quote unquote goes to silence, you know, it's 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 uh, there's still a little bedding of ambience mm -hmm. uh, underneath. But here, it, it sort of made sense to, to, to me and to, to all of us, to the mixing team, to just uh, remove even that. So when those moments happen, and you know, especially the moment you describe, it's you're literally hearing nothing um, in the uh, in the theater except for you know whatever the audience mm. is bringing to it. There's a couple of little moments as well that have, you know, the contemporary tracks or, or existing music is is used in, in Lunar Rhapsody. Obviously, mm -hmm. is, is there and beautiful connection genuinely authentically with Neil and Janet Armstrong and it being a track that they, yeah. they danced to and they loved and and it, so he did take it to space mm -hmm. and play yeah, it in yeah. cassette that's yeah that's I mean it's, it's actually written about in, in Jim Hansen's book uh, that the movie's based on but it was just one of those anecdotes that I think I, I either skimmed over or didn't think much about until Ryan highlighted it for me and played me the actual track I mean, just the idea of playing music from space and playing it kind of while he knew it would be transmitted by Houston. I mean, there's yeah. something beautiful about that. But then you hear the track and it becomes even more kind of particular. Yeah.
Did I hear a seagull as well in a scene? Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, you know, he's looking up uh, during... Uh, that was actually, I think that was something that... Uh, I forget who it was, but one of the astronauts being interviewed in, uh, in a documentary I saw, I always remembered it. He talked <laughs> about lying there in the capsule waiting for liftoff and seeing birds uh, flying by. You're already at the level of the birds because you're, you're, you're sitting that high yeah. up off the ground on, the, uh, on this rocket. I love the sound of seagulls. I'm from the seaside, so it oh, yeah. so that, uh, I loved it. Yeah. Well, it's a really? peaceful, yeah. peaceful kind of sound. But of course, uh, you know, it, it seemed interesting to sort of counterpoint that kind of sound with uh, moments where I, at least, would be, you know, probably wetting my pants out of fear, <laughs> yeah. waiting there for this I thin know. big night underneath me. You feel like you've you've been in space because it, it you're so there in in those capsules with those <laughs> men, and so much of that is down to how you've shot it and. And the sound design as well is so important. You know, those rickety tins that they're, you can yeah. feel it and hear it in the way the camera's moving, but the sounds as well and, and stuff. And that marriage of those things. And it's so particular, but so powerful. It, it was, uh, I mean, I was really lucky to, um, to just have the team to work with that, that I did. I mean, the sound designers and engineers were just brilliant. Um, uh, I Langley and... And Millie Morgan, I, I had worked with on La La Land, mm. uh, with Justin, obviously, uh, beforehand. But then they were joined by Mary Ellis, who did the on-set sound, uh, and uh, Frank Quintana and, and, and John Taylor, who, who uh, came on in post. And, and, uh, and so together, the, 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 you know, essentially the five of those people were, were each of them just sort of carving out a piece of this uh, of the soundtrack and blending it together and it, and it was it was incredibly hands-on kind of work I mean I remember I Ling going traveling multiple times to Florida to, to record uh, launches and uh, you know obviously they're not launching Saturn V's there anymore but launching the Falcon X and, and, and certain SpaceX rockets and also going to Texas to, to record the sounds of uh, rocket tests there and uh, I remember Frankie uh, going to uh, well, various places all over the country to record uh, old vintage spacesuits. Um, you know, hmm. sort of. Uh, I remember he recorded John Young's uh, suit that he wore on the moon. Wow. Uh, sort of put mics into the helmets and into the valves to see, you know, what what what, just to hear what oxygen going wow. through them would be like, and all these sort of things. Um, they really took it. They took their jobs very seriously, and it was it was sort of amazing to hear what they were then bringing back because yeah. it was so particular and I think beautiful and uh, and then it's, of course it's just you know the fun thing in a way is just once you've collected all those sounds to then sort of be able to sit down and play with okay where do we ramp them up where do we bring them down where do we pull them out or or where do we augment them with you know things that uh, aren't literal at all you know yeah. things that are more heightened to sort of suggest the ferociousness of a rocket mm -hmm. or of something in space and Ling would be playing with animal sounds and, and uh, you know, sounds of warfare and explosions and things and just kind of, you know, but baked in in such a way that you don't really know exactly what you're hearing, but it just becomes this kind of overwhelming sensory experience. Um, it, it, was, uh, it was a lot of work, but it was, it was, uh, it was, it was kind of amazing to, to, to see those people work. Ten thousand feet, switching to lunar mode. Final landing approach. We're too low. Climb. Control is degrading. Slow your rate. Do you read? Neil.
Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. I love that little bit where they're yeah. kind of uh, they're all around each other's houses having dinner, <laughs> relaxing, and we've got Oklahoma on an 8-track in the background. Yep. It's like, it's brilliant. It's certainly a piece of Americana. <laughs> yeah, uh, totally. They, 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 um, uh, we spent a lot of time actually thinking about and asking, you know, what kind of music would the astronaut families <laughs> yeah. be listening to? You know, I mean, was, a lot of it was very old school. It was, it was uh, I mean, Neil was a big fan of show tunes. So that's true, because that's in the uh, script. Yeah, yeah, oh yeah, 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 that's all true. Yeah, he wrote the the musical for the student review in college, and he was uh, (laughs) a big uh, uh, Gilbert and Sullivan fan, and and Rodgers and Hammerstein fan, and and, um, also a big, big band fan. Yeah, and so, you know, we just sort of, uh, 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 we had some fun kind of sifting through what those catalogs might be. Yeah. Oklahoma, where the wind comes sweeping down the plain, and the I don't want to kind of say too much about the film because it's a wonderful journey about learning about this man outside of what the story we've already been told about him. And there is so much that you reveal in this film about him. And loss is a big part of that. And there's a scene where he's singing to his daughter, I See the Moon. And I wanted to know whether that was, again, something that you researched to find out if if Neil, you know, would sing that to his children or whether that was something Ryan came up with or together? That, or? It, was, it was actually something Ryan uh, came up with uh, during rehearsals. And, and a lot of that footage is actually from these sort of two weeks of rehearsals that we did with the actors and with the kids. Um, is that when you uh, told them you uh, weren't right filming? Right before principal photography. <laughs> well, yeah. There seemed to be varying takes on this. They all knew I was filming. Maybe they didn't know it would wind up in the movie. But, uh, <laughs> but, um, but you know, we, 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 uh, we tried to create this environment, you know, with the sets and the costumes and, and camera and everything that was like the movie, but just to create an environment for the actors and kids to feel like a family yeah. and get used to being filmed as a family. And uh, and so, yeah, it all had this sort of quality of home movies and, and uh, lots of things kind of arose from, from that time, one of which was this song, I See the Moon, that Ryan found, or that, or that might have actually been a, might have been a tape deck line around, or, or a record line around... Um, when we were sort of playing with things yeah. uh, from the era. And uh, in any case, he sort of latched onto it and um, and it just seemed like a beautiful kind of thing to play with. Mm, my granddad used to sing it to me as a kid. Really? Yeah, that's oh, why wow. I kind of really connected with it. It's that's a lullaby. I, it's a beautiful yeah, song. Yeah, it's stunning, yeah. beautiful, yeah. Yeah, really, really beautiful. And it's kind of nice when you hear the stories of how those, you know, the natural progression of why that ended up in the film. It kind of came through a, a real yeah. moment and a natural moment. Totally, yeah, yeah. that was really through happenstance. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, amazing. Hold it down, little professor, and give your little fella a chance. Over the mountains, over the sea. Down to 
music on set at all? Yeah, actually, so, uh, sometimes uh, sometimes Ryan actually would request uh, to hear a little a little music, a little Justin's score. By the time we, I always like to have some of the score written and even orchestrated before we oh, start wow. shooting. And so in this case, we had some of the you know space pieces um, you know done up as mock-ups yeah. essentially. And uh, you know for some of those scenes where Ryan would be in spacesuit and you know with the sort of soundproof helmet on and everything, he can't really hear anything outside. The only way I could communicate to him was with a you know a microphone into his earbud. But that also meant that I could just you know sort of play from my eye phone directly into his earbud so only he would be yeah. hearing uh, the music him. and uh, <laughs> I don't think he would appreciate that that would have really ruined the performance but hearing a little bit of that theremin and a little bit of Justin's melodies in his ear I think really helped him uh, just sort of get into the moment for certain especially some of the silent scenes where he just had to kind of gaze out into space or, or have a moment of reflection yeah. while in space it was really helpful to him to be able to tap into that sound. The amount of effort, you know, and commitment that Ryan put into this performance, it's an effortless performance because it's so real. In particular, those moments where it's just his face and or even his just eyes in a visor, you know, in, in yeah. his space helmets and stuff like that. It's so brilliant. I, I well, I, I agree, uh, uh, and thank you for saying that. I mean, I mean, I, I've I've always been a fan of Ryan's. I, I was a fan long before I ever worked with him. I actually, I never saw anyone else in the role um, uh, other than Ryan. The moment that I started reading Jim's book, for whatever reason, Ryan was the person I had in mind. And I, I uh, so the first time I ever met Ryan to talk with him about a project was about this. And I just pitched him, you know, this sort of rough idea of what I wanted the movie to be like. And, uh, and he seemed interested. And I also found out he was interested in musicals. And uh, <laughs> I had this musical script. And, 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 uh, and so that, you know... <laughs> That kind of went into that, uh, uh, but as soon as La La Land was done, you know, I, 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 uh, by that point, Josh Singer, the the uh, uh, incredible screenwriter who, yeah. who who adapted Jim's book, uh, uh, had a draft of the script. By that point, we gave it to Ryan. Ryan read it, responded to it, um, and uh, and then we all just started working together. And I think part of what makes Ryan sort of unique is that. He's one of the hardest workers I know, and, and he, he burrows into the character, and in this case, playing a real person, he mm -hmm. just, you know, went to great lengths to, to glean every bit of information he could 
about Neil. He took flying lessons. He went up to Neil's childhood home to talk to his family uh, there. He spent time with colleagues and friends and uh, fellow astronauts, and he went to boot camp at NASA and Florida and just kind of tried to pick up every single thing he could. And yet he does have a way of making all that work invisible. He has a way of making it all seem effortless and, and, um, and a way also of communicating so much with so little at yeah. times because Neil was such a taciturn individual and Ryan is able to invest so much into those pregnant pauses and those silences. But I love working with him because it's such a collaborative process, you know, as we were talking about with Lunar Rhapsody or with I See the Moon or uh, so many other things in, in the movie uh, uh, that, you know, that I'm even forgetting about uh, were things that Ryan dug up himself. And so he's, it's really like working with a fellow storyteller, you know, yeah. and, and, and you're just in it together. Um, it's not just director, actor. It's like, uh, you know, Ryan, myself, Josh, it all felt like we were just kind of collaborating mm -hmm. to tell the story. I've got to ask about the bracelet because, mm -hmm. I mean, I was in bits. <laughs> um, at, at that, yeah, you know, kind I mean, of, it's... Um, well, you, well uh, uh, it's funny, I see you actually have a bracelet. I do, with my similar. boy's name on it, yeah. Yeah, yeah. it's... it's um, um, well, so so the uh, the idea came from uh, uh, I mean, there's a passage in Jim Hansen's book that talks about this time that Neil spent um, uh, alone by himself uh, at the crater during the, his moonwalk, and um, also talks about you know he, he he all the astronauts had these PPKs, uh, you know, personal preference kits where they, they you know they would often use to bring personal lament mementos to the lunar surface, and uh, we know that the astronauts, for example, of, of Apollo 11 brought a, a patch of of the Apollo 1 uh, mission, uh, sort of to commemorate mm. their fallen comrades and left that on the moon. We know that Buzz, uh, you know, mentioned bringing some of his wife's jewelry and uh, later Apollo missions left family photographs um, on the on the lunar surface. Neil uh, never disclosed what was in his PPK, refused to sort of confirm or deny what exactly mm -hmm. he had brought with him. And so it was actually a conjecture on the part of uh, his biographer, Jim Hansen, and and also came out of discussions with uh, his sister, June, who was one of the people closest to him in his life. She, she perhaps optimistically, you know, hopefully uh, thinks that he uh, uh, brought something of, of his daughter's and yeah. left it on the moon. And so that's kind of where the idea came from. And I guess I just, I, I believe that it would be the case. It seemed to me that for everyone who knew Neil, um, and of course, you know, this comes as no surprise, that loss, the, the death of his daughter, changed everything for him. And, and she, she had really been the, the apple of his eye and just uh, his world in many ways. And so that loss just kind of... Uh, created this hole that, um, you know, obviously I don't think ever gets filled, but I do think he would have and did uh, leave something uh, of hers behind on the moon, whether it was a bracelet or not, uh, that I, I can't say. Listen, thank you for your time. I mean, the last well, time we, we spoke was before La La Land kind of took off, really, and it, I remember, was, it yeah. was London Film Festival, yeah. so it was, <clears throat> it was before it kind of had its own amazing journey. Yeah. Um, so congratulations. No, I remember that was so fun, um, and, and, and this, this too, this was so, it's so fun to get to talk in detail about this stuff. <laughs> um, Damien, thank you so much for your time. Thank and, you. And congratulations again on First Man. Cheers. Thanks so thank much. You. Thanks.
from Justin Horwitz's score to First Man, that's Apollo 11 launch, rounding off this latest episode of Soundtracking with Damien Chazelle. My huge thanks to Damien for taking the time to talk to us a second time round. He really is one smart cookie. First Man is on general release now and is yet another staggering piece of cinema. Now we'll put up a Spotify playlist for this show via edithbowman.com, which is also the place to catch up with all of our previous episodes, including the ones with Damien and Justin. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. We are at Soundtracking UK and do please rate us on iTunes if you get a moment. Now, before we go, I just wanted to point our UK listeners in the direction of home delivery service Milk and More. Continuing the great British tradition of the milkman, the team at Milk and More take pride in bringing fresh organic milk in reusable glass bottles to you. As well as the white stuff, they also offer a wide range of culinary essentials sourced from farms up and down the country, from bread, eggs and vegetables to yogurts, preserves and cheese. Check whether they deliver to you via their website milkandmore.co.uk, then register and order from their large selection of carefully selected artisan produce, which will then be delivered direct to your door before 7am if you're an early riser. That's milkandmore.co.uk, where you'll find the best of Britain, bottled and plenty more besides. Join us next week for more soundtracking, where we have the second sitting with writer-director Sasha Gervaisi, talking about his fascinating new film, My Dinner with Hervé, which stars Peter Dinklage and Jamie Dornan. I very much look forward to the pleasure of your company then. Thank you.